over the course of the past year around the world, those who keep track of such numbers tell us nearly 3,000 Christians have been killed for their faith and roughly 9,500 churches and Christian buildings have been attacked in some way. Those are the cases we know of as reported by the organization Open Doors. Certainly the actual numbers are probably worse than that. Persecution of people because of their faith in Jesus Christ, because of their belief about the word of God continues and is severe in, in many places around the world. Millions of people live in fear of some kind that they will experience persecution because of their stand for Jesus Christ. In the United States, religious liberty has been a cornerstone of, of what we have believed and practiced, but we cannot be ignorant to the fact that the anti-Christian sort of rhetoric has stepped up in recent years. There's growing opposition to the Bible's teaching about sex and marriage, about the roles of husbands and wives, about male leadership in the local church, issues like these and others that have drawn the ire of those in our culture. Regardless of your Opinion or mine about the upcoming Supreme Court hearings that start tomorrow morning, the reality is we've already seen that there will be sharp questioning about the nominee's religious beliefs. So how are we to respond? How are we to respond to the, the threat of persecution? How are we to respond when there is intense opposition? Uh, we're going to see this morning in Acts chapter 12, and you can turn there, how the local church responds to the threat of persecution. But I want to broaden it out just by way of application. This is not merely looking at persecution and our response to it. This is our, our response to fear, to those things that, that terrify you, those things that bring the, the heart rate and the, the blood pressure up and that cause you to be afraid. We're going to see that here in Acts chapter 12. The, the, the church has every reason to be afraid and how do they respond? And so Acts 12, as they are facing persecution, let's pick up right at the beginning, Acts 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And pause there. In terms of the, the calendar of history in the book of Acts, this, this is very much parallel to what we read in Acts chapter 11. If anything, we're almost taking just a tick back in, in time in that we're, we're now moving back from Antioch where we've been up on the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean. We're back down in Jerusalem now. And, and this is probably paralleling what we read in Acts chapter 11. Even as there is ministry going on up in Antioch and the church there is being planted back in Jerusalem, the church there is beginning to face another round of persecution. In Acts 11, we see how the gospel reaches Antioch, how the, the establishing of a local church happens with Saul and Barnabas spending a year there and teaching and preaching and building the people up. And then Luke says to start this chapter about that time, as, th as that's going on, this is happening in Jerusalem. About that time, Herod Agrippa becomes the king. He is appointed king by the Roman emperor at that point. Uh, Agrippa is Herod the Great's grandson. 
Herod Antipas's uh, nephew. So Herod the Great, you think of when you think of Matthew chapter 2 at the birth of Jesus and the terrible slaughter of baby boys in Bethlehem. That is, that is this Herod's grandfather who commits that. When he dies, then the kingdom is sort of divvied up amongst a number of his sons, and one of those is Herod Antipas, and that's the Herod that we see in the gospel accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, when Pilate sends Jesus to Herod, and Herod essentially mocks him because he doesn't perform for him, doesn't do any tricks for him. That's, that's the uncle of this Herod. Agrippa now is made the ruler. Uh, this is now the first time that Palestine is consolidated again, just as it was under Herod the Great, kind of split up under his sons. And now under Herod Agrippa, he has control of all of Palestine. And it is clear that almost immediately into his reign, Agrippa sets out to, to sort of curry favor with one of the larger segments of his subjects, and that is the Jewish people. And for no apparent reason, unprovoked, he begins to attack the church of Jesus Christ. And it says in verse 1, he lays violent hands on some who belong to the church. So there are apparently some arrests that happen. And then there is the execution of James. If you think back to Acts chapter 8, when the first persecution happened, when the church was fairly new, it said at that point that, that they were scattered, that the believers were scattered all except the apostles. For some reason, the, the persecutors then, and, and that was largely Jewish religious leaders behind that, that didn't have the, the sanction necessarily of the government over it. At, at that point when it happens, the apostles are left alone. There's some sense in not, not laying hands on the most prominent figures in Christianity, and so they remain in Jerusalem. Now with Agrippa, that changes. Shortly after he begins, and he only reigns for about three or four years, and so this is early in his reign, that he decides he is going to begin to execute leaders in the Christian church as a way of, of winning approval points with the Jews. There are two prominent men named James in early church leadership. We'll still see one other one who is in, in, prominent still in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, and that is James, the earthly brother of Jesus, uh, the one who gives us the epistle of James. He, he is still alive. We will continue to see him at, at, in some role. This is James, the brother of John, throughout the ministry of Jesus, sort of that, that inner circle of Peter, James, and John, who often are seen with Jesus at, at various scenes, Mount of Transfiguration, for instance, when they are with him. This is James, who was part of that inner circle, who is put to death shortly after Agrippa takes the throne. So there is this tremendous violence and fear now for the church, because not only has, have some been arrested, one of the leaders been killed for no apparent reason, but now Peter has been arrested. They have taken him, brought him into custody, and, and Herod clearly has the same intent that once the Passover is done and, and there's this large gathering of Jews from all over the world, then he will then put Peter on display and execute him. Put yourself in the place of a believer in, in Judea, in Jerusalem, at this point in time. Church is fairly young. We're roughly 10 years or so into Christianity. There is intense Jewish hatred. You, the, the culture continues to oppose you. You are already a minority in a minority, and, and you are already feeling all of the effects of persecution. And now the government is sanctioning murder as a response to Christianity. How do you respond? Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God 
by the church. I want to I suggest to you this morning three, three lessons out of this passage for us. As we, whether it's persecution, the threat of persecution, whether it is uncertainty, what, whatever it is that, that brings you terror, that, that causes you fear in some way, I, I want us to see in the early church just some of the ways they respond. The first one is the most obvious one. They pray earnestly. There is an intensity about their praying. These believers in Jesus Christ know their place. They are a small minority that's part of an established minority. They are not going to overthrow Agrippa. They are not going to start circulating recall petitions. They are not going to have success in appealing to Rome and having Rome remove him. There is nothing politically or by force or by any kind of physical means that the church can do at this point. They, they can't even, you know, they can't do a letter writing campaign or letters to the editor. They are helpless. There is nothing they can physically do to stop what Herod is starting to do. They are helpless to stem the tide of this persecution. They are helpless to get Peter out of prison. It makes it clear that it's four squads of soldiers that are used to guard him. There is this massive effort to, to make sure that Peter is incarcerated and will stay there. There is nothing they can do to stop Agrippa from sending out more of his guards to more of their homes to begin arresting more of them with, without charge, without cause, simply because they are believers. Put yourself in that place. You've got nowhere to go. You can't jump on the interstate and head to the relatives who are a couple of hundred miles away. You are in a difficult, painful, terrifying situation trying to decide what to do. They are helpless. And so they prayed. They prayed to the only one who could do something here, to the one who is almighty and the one who is able to change the circumstances, to, to protect them or to do what, whatever he sees fit. You and I are, are perhaps most tempted to neglect prayer because we don't feel helpless because we don't feel like we're, we're in that position where we, we desperately need to cry out like we're children who, who need help in some way. We don't see our circumstances as desperate enough to drive us to earnest prayer. Paul Miller, in his excellent book, A Praying Life, explains this. He says, little children are good at helplessness. It's what they do best. But as adults, we soon forget how important helplessness is. I, for one, am allergic to helplessness. I don't like it. I want a plan, an idea, or maybe a friend to listen to my problem. This is how I instinctively approach everything because I am confident in my own abilities. Does that ring a bell? That is, that is just where we can be day in and day out because we don't feel circumstances that, that leave us in a sense of helplessness. And if we're honest, that's where... It's where many of us are day to day. And, and one benefit, if you can call it that, of suffering and persecution is the genuine sense of desperation that these early believers felt. That the sense that they were helpless and, and they are praying because they know God is never helpless. God is the helper. God is their strength. God is their fortress. And they are crying out to him. God is always the greatest and strongest power. He is the immovable rock 
Proverbs 21 reminds us that the heart of the king is like this stream of water that is in the hand of God, and he turns it in whatever direction he chooses. He is the sovereign ruler, and so they wisely and earnestly are crying out to him, saying, God, you, you must act. We, we can do nothing but sit in this house trapped in here, waiting for some knock on the door that, that could mean our own demise. And so we are praying. What do we do? Think of it this way. If, if, if you have young children, you love those children, and they suddenly find themselves in, in a desperate situation, and they are, they are helpless, what do you want them to do? Do you, do you want them to just get tough and figure it out? Work your way out of it. Some of the dads are, are sort of thinking that. The moms, there's just no way you're thinking that at this point. But the reality is, when they're young children and they're in a desperate situation, we want them to ask for help. We want them to say, I need, I, I need help. We don't want them to just pridefully sort of think, I can, I can do this. I can work this out. We want them to ask. We must pray. Our nation is in turmoil. A major election is three weeks away. A, a pandemic is still devastating lives. Evil is abounding. How foolish must we be to not pray? And even when things are not as difficult as they seem to be today in 2020, we are still weak clay vessels who desperately need strength and grace and help from our master. We, we must believe that, and our prayer lives will be a reflection of how deeply we hold that. Our, our trust in God's sovereignty does not replace our need to pray. It does not relieve us of the responsibility to pray. It is not making us theological giants to say, sit back and go, God's got it. God's in control. Don't need to do anything. Don't even need to pray because God's sovereign. That is not what we see in Scripture. The response repeatedly from God's people is pray, because in prayer we are expressing our weakness. We are declaring God to be the strong one. We are showing our faith in him. We pray knowing that our God does powerful, even miraculous works. And so we plead to him for help and wisdom to intervene in our circumstances, to save the lost, to, to, to show himself strong. We pray for him to use his church, you and I, to our, our, the fullest extent possible of sacrifice and faith that we can give. We pray for God, God to guard our lives and our hearts so that no matter what comes, we will remain steadfast, trusting in him, obeying him. God, hold me that I would remain firm, that I would remain steadfast in whatever situation comes. The early church recognizes this helplessness, and so they gather together and they pray intensely, fervently for God to intervene. All right, let's read on. Verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night... Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. Luke is just giving us this full picture. This guy is in severe isolation at this point. Verse 7, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. 
He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed." Let me read on, actually. I'm just going to stop there. I'm looking. I, I have outside notes with my text over here, and then I'm reading over here, and I have to stop every now and then and remember where I am. Sorry about that. Um, let's keep reading. Peter continued knocking. When they opened, they saw him, and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came... There was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the centuries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. It's a remarkable passage of scripture. One commentator calls this one of the most delightful and engaging narratives in the book of Acts. Delightful if you're not one of the Roman centuries who has been given the responsibility of guarding Peter. The penalty for the, the century was whatever the penalty was supposed to be for the escaped prisoner, you would now experience that penalty. And so that's what happens at the end of this. In the middle of the night, Peter is bound. He is... In, chains. He is surrounded. There are cards at the door. There is an iron gate. There are gates all the way to that iron gate. There is everything that is keeping him in maximum security prison. And Peter there is, is thinking he's dreaming. And Peter's having this wonderful dream in which he sees himself, the chains falling off, and he is getting up, and he is just walking out of the prison as if somebody has just opened the way for him. And Peter's just, you, you can just imagine the smile on his face as he's thinking he is just dreaming, this sweet dream of freedom on the eve of what is to be his execution. And then he, he comes to, and it is the middle of the night, and he's standing in a street in Jerusalem, and it's not a dream. He has been freed. The gates were open. The chains fell off. The guards, for some reason, had no clue that Peter was walking past them and escaping into freedom. Peter was set free. Believers at the same time are gathered. They're praying and they're praying. There's a knock at the gate. The servant listens, hears Peter's voice. Always one of the more humorous sections of scripture where she just sort of runs back into the room and says, Peter's here. Peter's in the midst of fleeing from a, a presumed guard that's going to be looking for him soon. And all Peter wants to do is get behind the gate and in the house. And meanwhile, she's in saying, you're not going to believe this, but he's right outside, this guy that you're praying for. And they say, no, we don't believe it. You're crazy. And sure enough, it turns out that it's Peter. Peter is brought in, and the people are amazed. Here's number two. Pray 
and then prepare to be amazed. Pray earnestly and prepare to be amazed. Now, we're taking this lesson from the opposite response of the believers here in Jerusalem. They were not prepared to be amazed. As much as they were praying earnestly for God to work in this situation, they were shocked when God actually did. They, they, in fact, they, they tell her, this is crazy. You're out of your mind. There's no way, we've heard about what kind of guard Peter is under, and there is no way it's Peter. And yet we have the benefit of reading this story. And, and, and so many others in Acts and throughout the scriptures that remind us again and again that God does amazing things, that he is powerful to break chains and to free people, that God is the strong one. We have the the benefit of scripture and the testimonies from centuries of the church, and we have believers in our own lives who who testify to to things that God has done that, that were inexplicable apart from the hand of God. Ephesians, Paul writes, Ephesians 3.20, God is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. At the end of that great prayer, he's reminding the believers in Ephesus, God can do more than you can even think to ask. God can do beyond that. God is powerful. He is above all of creation. He is Lord of all. What he determines to do, he accomplishes. Our God is not weary. He's not perplexed by circumstances. He's not saying, oh, this 2020 is just, this is a mess. God is sovereign and he is in control. And he urges us to not only pray, but to trust him to believe that his ways are good and to rest in him as we have prayed to to know that what he does is good and right. In Psalm 145, David writes, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. There's David on the one hand saying, the the greatness of God is unsearchable. You can never mine the depth of it. But his response to that is not to say, so, so. You can't do it, so so don't bother. But rather his response is, therefore, we need to work all the harder to to just try to understand the depths of God's greatness. We need to ponder his greatness. Think about who he is. Think about his character. Read about how he's described in Scripture and consider his great works and then declare them to one another. Testify to one another of, of what God has done not only from what we see in Scripture, but from what we experience in our own lives. Speak of the greatness of God and declare it as we're contemplating his works. We are to tell of his deeds and recount his greatness. In Luke's record here in Acts, the release and freedom of Peter is a remarkable moment in the life of this young church as as Peter's now been set free. But the story doesn't even end there, right? This is just the beginning. We jump forward now, matter of months, maybe at most a year, and God will now make it abundantly clear that that Agrippa will not prevail. So look at verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon 
And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. It's a pretty remarkable piece of the story, isn't it? Tyre and Sidon are cities along the Mediterranean. The, the area of Palestine that Agrippa covers um, runs east of Tyre and Sidon. This coastal area is still part of Phoenicia. And so they are not under his rule, but they are almost landlocked. They can travel up to the north, but they need the, the agriculture that comes from inland. They, they need food from Judea. They can fish all they want, but for vegetables and everything else, they, they need to work a deal. They need to trade some commerce with Judea. And it's clear that Agrippa somehow holds the upper hand in these negotiations. He despises them. He wants to make life difficult on them. And so there is some negotiator, somebody who serves Agrippa, who has connections with Tyre and Sidon, and he sort of negotiates between them. Presumably, Agrippa's upper hand is so much that, that come the day of his sitting down with Tyre and Sidon and declaring to them that this is how it will be, this is the deal that, that we have reached, that I have decided, that there is going to be a public celebration of Agrippa's greatness. It's not enough to just sit and negotiate it. Agrippa is going to have to bring everybody around them and tell them that, that he has done this and he is worthy of their praise. And apparently the, the negotiator behind all this has prepared the people of Tyre and Sidon and said, you need to flatter the king. You need to just worship this king when he comes out. It's very interesting that the secular historian Josephus gives us this account. We don't only have this from Luke in Scripture. That's sufficient. But we also have Josephus in his antiquities writing about this. And he describes Agrippa coming out in this robe that has got silver threading all through it. And he comes out in the daylight. And the silver just makes for this magnificent uh, shine in the sun, the reflection of it. And so as he walks out, it is godlike. This is as, as staged to be as godlike as it can be when Agrippa walks out in, in front of the crowd, begins to speak, and the crowd says, you, you are a god. It is like we are hearing when you speak. It is like we are hearing the voice of a god. Agrippa's response at that moment should have been to say, no, there is only one true God. Don't call me God. I am not God. But instead, even Josephus tells us that Agrippa received that. He took that, that praise and that worship that is due to the most high God and not to him. And he took it, and Josephus tells us that he coiled over with stomach pain suddenly that became so severe they had to carry him out and back at the palace at some point shortly thereafter, Josephus says it was five days. Luke gives us the picture that this happened quickly. Agrippa dies. Luke tells us the, the real story, that this is not just something that went wrong in Agrippa's stomach. This is the hand of God. He is struck by the angel of God. The mighty king who had not that long ago been threatening the very existence of Christianity, who for 
popularity sake was slaughtering Christians or at least on a mission to do so is now dead. We are reminded of this over and over, but we need to see it again. Our God reigns. He is the most high. There is none greater than him. He rules over history. No king, no court, no president, no Congress, no election, no law, no you fill in the blank can overrule God. Amen? Do we believe that? So he is in control. He is sovereign over what lies ahead of us. And, 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 and the believers who started praying earnestly in that house, not knowing what the future held, had no idea that in no time at all, Peter would be free, left to go and preach the gospel elsewhere, and Agrippa would be dead. And that round of persecution would come to an end. This, this should bring back to mind the counsel that the Pharisee Gamaliel gave back in chapter 5 when the, the Jewish religious leaders were just starting to threaten the church. And Gamaliel, after listening to them persecute or at least threaten persecution against Peter and John, Gamaliel says, guys, send these men out and, and let me explain something to you. We could really mess up big here. If these guys are just zealots, if they're just man-powered sort of guys doing their own thing, they'll be crushed like bugs eventually. They'll be done. But he said, if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Saying, guys, you, you could... You could be putting yourself in the very position of shaking your fist at Almighty God. And regardless of, of what all they believed about Jesus, something in the back of their mind told them that was not a good place to be. And here is Agrippa who, who arrogantly put himself not only in the place of opposing God, but actually put himself in the place of receiving worship due to God and, and, and took it for himself as if he was somehow majestic like God or deserved what God should receive. And it cost him his life. The king of Judea was struck down by the king of kings. And we need to know that and believe that and know that whatever circumstances happen in our lives, in our families, or in our country, our king is still the king of kings. He still rules. Even when everything looks like it's skidding off the rails, our response should be to pray earnestly and to prepare to be amazed at what God does and what he accomplishes in all of this. This is the, the God who said, I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Remember Jesus saying that in Matthew 18, I, I am doing this good work. Man will not stop it. And here's proof. Last verse we'll read, verse 24 says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. We should pray earnestly, we should prepare to be amazed, and we should persevere in our proclamation of the gospel. The, the, the fact that the word of God increased and multiplied is a work of God. It is God's spirit who is at work, but he's at work through whom? God's people. The, the fact that the word of God is still going out and, and increasing and multiplying means God's people, despite whatever threats there are in the world, are still going preaching. 
They're still proclaiming the gospel of peace. They are still going forth. And the fact that God's word is increasing and multiplying tells us they didn't hunker down and go, we dodged that one. Agrippa's gone. We need to just keep our heads down and stay out of trouble. But rather, it was all the more reason to go and proclaim Christ, to speak the gospel, to tell others. This is an interesting transition point in Acts. Peter will fade from the scene. For, for as best as we understand, Peter continues on in ministry, not in and around Jerusalem from this point on. The book will shift largely now to Saul, Paul, uh, as we go forward in Acts. But, but what is clear is, in the midst of government-sanctioned persecution, whether it had been under Herod or whether it will ultimately come from the Roman Empire, the gospel still goes forward. Because for all of Agrippa's threats, for all that he actually did, for all of the violence that is carried out, it could not stop the spread of God's word through believers in Jesus Christ. The Spirit continues to work through them. Jesus Christ in that great commission so that we are to go and to make disciples of all nations, and I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. We need to persevere in proclamation. This is our highest calling. This is the mandate that Jesus has given us, that, that we would not just be in awe of this most high God on Sunday morning, but that we would now live lives that testify of his greatness and tell others of who he is. And proclaim this gospel, seeing our, our, our serving our great God by, by joining in the increase of his word is this privilege that you and I take wherever we go. And, and we, have the, we have the freedom to do that. We have the freedom to go and to proclaim Christ. And even if we don't, we, we have a God who promises to be with us wherever we are and whatever we do. And so I, I would just encourage this morning that Whatever that is, may not be the threat of persecution. Maybe that's not looming all that closely for you, but maybe there's something else that just seems terrifying, that, that stokes fear in you. May God encourage you from this to be helpless and to pray earnestly, to cry out to him, to, to call on his name, to acknowledge who he is and that he is strong and that he is good and he is wise in your circumstances. May he help us to know without a doubt that he is the sovereign king that we can trust. We can, we can prepare to be amazed. It, it may not be the outcome as we would predict it. it. It may not go exactly the way that we would want it to go, but we can trust him that, that this good and kind and wise and loving and powerful God will accomplish his good work, and we can rest in that. May God strengthen us to not grow weary, that we would continue to do the work of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing us in passages like this one in Acts of your mighty hand at work to preserve your glory, to defend your honor, but also to to magnify yourself through your people, to, to take humble servants who feel at a place of utter helplessness, who feel like earthly circumstances are conspiring in every way against them, and for showing us again that, 
You are the God who gives strength to those who rest in you, who are helpless before you, who bow before you, who cry out to you. Lord, help us to not be tossed to and fro by whatever the latest headlines are, by whatever the the latest dramatic moment seems to happen in politics or in our world or whatever it might be. Help us to not be knocked down and tossed around by everything that comes along, but hold us steadfast. Cause us as your people to stand firm even when our lives are in turmoil, when the people around us are doing things that are unkind, unjust, when the people around us are shaking their fist at you or defying you, cause us not to be terrified or to cower away, but to remain steadfast, to continue to hold fast to the hope that that you are king, And that what you have decreed will come to pass in your time exactly as you have prescribed. Help us to be reminded again that our Savior promised to be with us always, even unto the end of the age. That he is here, that he is with us, that he is in your people, that he is there to to strengthen and encourage and comfort and walk with and abide with and help and convict. Lord, we we give you thanks for the, the presence of your son, Jesus Christ, through your spirit in your people. Father, we pray for the people around us who do not bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Lord, we see in Agrippa just the the powerful ruler, but Lord, we, we, are, we can all think of people who, who somehow think that they are masters of their own future, that can do what they want to do and not care about those around them. And Father, we, we plead with you earnestly to save them. Lord, even though we see your justice rightly meted out against Agrippa and we understand that justice and it demonstrates that you are the sovereign king and you will not tolerate someone trying to stand in your place and take what you deserve. We also plead for those in our lives who desperately need your mercy, that you would rescue them from the blindness and lostness, from from perceiving that they somehow have it under control Bring them to a place of trusting in Jesus Christ alone, believing that he died for their sin and rose again. Lord Jesus, we, we pray that as we enter into this new week, we would be faithful, that we would persevere in, in telling others of who you are, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only by how we live and serve you, but by our words, that we would speak your truth. We are just surrounded by people who who desperately want peace and who are being tossed to and fro by everything going on in the world. Help us to, to show them what it is to be able to stand steadfast because of your grace and your strength, that it is not of us, that we are, are not somehow better, smarter, wiser, 
or more stable than them, it is because of the God that we rest in. And because you hold us fast, that we remain steadfast. We lift up all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.